you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Didn't they do a great job leading us in worship? Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the great I am. And that's shown in the clearest way in your resurrection. And we do humble ourselves before you. We worship you this evening. And as we sang, we turn our eyes to you, Jesus. And as we read your word tonight, we pray that you would be made much of. Jesus, it's you that we're here. It's we're seeking after you. We are thankful that you are alive, that your presence is with us tonight. Father, you know us. You know our struggles. You know our hearts. We ask that you would give us each the personal revelation of Jesus Christ, that the power of the resurrection would impact us in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. The most important moment in all of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything was leading up from creation to one thing, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything after that moment, it pivots on what you believe about Jesus Christ and specifically his death and resurrection. Got one question for you tonight, this resurrection weekend, it's this, the resurrection is blank. What is it? If you were to try to fill in the blank of the resurrection, what would you put in that space? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, and it defines it for us. If you come to RMC, I'm going to do it in a little bit different fashion than normal tonight. I'm going to read through the text and hit some major points uh, tonight. We will read the primary amount of verses, but we'll be looking at it from more of a 30,000-foot view tonight. But what is it in your life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is my prayer for us tonight, this weekend, is that we wouldn't just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ one weekend a year. As you look at Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, he prayed over and over again to know the power of the resurrection. Church, Christ is with you. He's with you right now. And as you go home tonight, He's with you. And as you rise tomorrow, at whatever time, he's with you. As you face Monday morning, he's with you. As we sin and we fail, he's with you. As his power moves through our life for victory over sin, he's with us. At the grave, he's with us. At the hospital, he's with us. In promotion, he's with us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's begin our journey tonight in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. The gospel, what is it? Maybe you've heard it many times, but what is the gospel? We're going to find out exactly what the gospel is here in the next few verses. By which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If you're taking notes tonight, this is the first thing to jot down. The resurrection is salvation. The resurrection is salvation. The gospel is this, that Jesus died for our sins. The reason that God sent his son was for our sins. Us specifically, me individually, you personally, 
God gave his son for you to be crucified upon the cross. Just had a great week this week. Did you guys enjoy the weather this week? Had some neat time with my family, with my four kids. I had a moment with them in the backyard where it seemed like the stars just all aligned and everybody was getting along and this joy and those, the fatherly feelings just came over me and I'm like, oh, I just love being a dad. This is great. And then I began to just meditate and think about God giving his son to die on the cross. What an act of love. And if you're a parent, you know that. You know the love that you have for your kids. You remember when they were born. You remember these specific times in their lives, these incidents, these increments, and to think of giving one of your own children. And God gave his son for us to be brutally murdered, executed, crucified on the cross for our sins. The story doesn't end there. And he rose again three days later according to the scriptures. The crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament in many places. We read in Isaiah 53 that points to the crucifixion of Christ. Psalms 22 as well. Psalms 16 that speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Isaiah offering Isaac pointing to ultimately the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's all over the Old Testament. Every sacrifice in the Levitical system pointed to Jesus Christ who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb who takes away our sins. Those who believe in the gospel, verse one told us, as we stand in the gospel, as we continue to trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, guess what? There's salvation Church, brother and sister in Christ, on this resurrection weekend, you're saved. You know Christ as your Savior. You know your eternal home and your hope, your sins are forgiven. I hope you never get tired of hearing that. I hope that inside of you, it just causes you to leap for joy to know the resurrection means salvation. It means that I'm the child of God, that you're the son of God, that you're the daughter of God, forgiven from our sin. Also freedom from sin, the power to live a different life, to have Christ transform us. The resurrection is salvation. We go on into verse five, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the 12. What did the resurrection mean to Peter? If you know his story, Peter had denied the Lord. He had done what he thought he would never do. He said, even if these other guys deny you, I'll die with you, Lord. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, before the sun rises, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. That's exactly what Peter did. He wept bitterly, yet Christ still went to the cross for a fallen Peter. Peter thinks that Christ is dead, Christ is alive. In Mark's gospel, the angels declare, go tell the disciples and Peter that he is risen. Why? Because Peter was in the valley of despair of his own sin. Here we find that when Christ rose from the dead, he was seen by Peter because Peter needed to experience the restoration of Christ and also by the 12. In verse six, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep, meaning some of that 500 had died. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, at one particular point he appeared to 500 people at once. So they were having a worship service. This was the ultimate Easter service right here. And Christ comes 
in his resurrected form in their midst and all 500 see Christ. This is before the ascension of Christ. In verse seven, after that he was seen by James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. James has the earthly father, Joseph, while Jesus, of course, has no father, born of a virgin. We know that James didn't believe in Christ, that Christ was God until after the resurrection. This is the ultimate I told you so moment. Christ could have said, you should have known something was different all of these years. James went on to write the book of James, the epistle of James, where James would say, make sure that you treat people the same. If someone poor comes in, treat them the same way that you would would treat a rich man because you never know who you're dealing with. James' whole life thought he was dealing with his brother, but it turned out to be God in human flesh, right? So James is amongst those that Jesus appeared to. Then by all of the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, of Saul, who became Paul, as by one bore out of due time. Saul wasn't in the life of Christ Jesus appeared to him after he had already ascended. The risen Savior this evening is still in operation in the business of saving souls, of appearing to people individually, of calling you by name, just like he did with Saul. So this brings us to our second point, and it's the resurrection is verifiable. The resurrection is verifiable. Maybe you think Christianity is an unreasonable faith. Maybe you support it to some degree because you go, well, it's good for them. It helps them through life, but I don't know that you can look at it objectively. If someone's a believer, if they're a Christian, if they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, to me it's the same as believing in the Easter bunny. I don't think that it's provable, that it's intellectual, that it's verifiable. And what we find here in these verses is the resurrection of Christ is verifiable. First, we've seen that the resurrection of Christ is according to the scriptures. This was prophesied. You can go back to the Old Testament and look and see how this was predicted long before it ever occurred. Also, there's some facts here that you have to wrestle with. Friend and foe, when it comes to Jesus Christ, so those that do believe in Jesus, but also those that reject Jesus, share some things in common. First, they know that Jesus existed. You have to be a complete fool to not acknowledge that Jesus Christ never lived. Historically, absolutely, we know that he lived. Friend and foe believe that. Also, it's very clear historically that Jesus Christ died, that he was crucified. Also, no one has ever been able to provide the body of Jesus Christ. It's not there. The tomb is empty. No skeptic has yet been able to produce the body of Jesus Christ. We have the witnesses that's recorded here for us in 1 Corinthians 15. All you need is two or three witnesses for someone to go to jail. Two to three witnesses for someone to have life in prison. And here we have 500 witnesses at once. What is the credibility of these witnesses? We know of the 12 that are mentioned that the majority of them, only John wasn't martyred. He was boiled in hot water, hot oil, excuse me, but God saved his life, and the others were martyred for their faith. You'd think if they made this up about Jesus Christ, that someone would crack in the moments that they would be executed. Tonight, I wanna give a simple and honest invitation to you. 
if you're not sure about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, search it out and investigate it. And do it with intellectual integrity. Do it with honesty. Don't come at it with prejudice. Look at the facts and then see what conclusion that you come up to. But we know that the resurrection is verifiable. In verse 9, going down to verse 11, the third thing is this. The resurrection is grace. For I'm the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. I persecuted the bride of Christ. I came against the body of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. We can all say that tonight. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul says, the resurrection is grace. God appeared to me as well. And I was a murderer of the church. I arrested the church. I persecuted the church. Maybe tonight you don't doubt whether the resurrection is verifiable. You doubt whether the resurrection is toward you. That God could give his son to die and rise again for you. Maybe you feel like you're just a little too far gone. Have you murdered Christians? Have you arrested Christians? Have you caused Christians to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, saying, if you do not deny Christ, then you're going to jail this evening? See, God's grace and his forgiveness was so deep that it could save Saul, who became Paul, and that's a message for you tonight, that there's grace for you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grace for, for salvation, but also grace for God to use your life. Do you believe that? You might be going, my past, my mistakes, my struggles, I can't be used by the Lord. And Paul says, by grace, I am what I am. Notice what grace did to Paul's heart and life. It caused him to labor more abundantly. Some people are afraid about teaching grace. They're saying, if, if we teach God's grace to people, then it's going to be sloppy agape, and people are going to adopt this kind of attitude that I can just continue in sin. That's not an understanding of grace. Grace teaches us to un deny ungodliness. When we realize all that Christ has done for us and what his death and resurrection is doing in our lives, it causes us to go, I want to labor for the Lord because my sins are forgiven. When I was in eighth grade, there was two homeroom teachers. Did you guys ever have homeroom teachers? And basically, the end of middle school, each day would end with the homeroom teacher, where you were supposed to do some homework before you headed out for the day. And there was Mr. Rail. That's quite a name for a middle school teacher, isn't it? Mr. Rail, and then you have Mr. Reed. And Mr. Rail, he might have been... Mr. Law. When you went to his homeroom, it was absolutely hush-hush, buy the book, get out your pencils, do your homework. Mr. Reed was much more of grace, and he would say, hey, it's your time. If you want to be a knucklehead, go ahead and talk with your friends. You're going to have to go home and do your homework. But if you want to be wise and do some homework here, then that's what I would suggest. And he says, I've got an open invitation to any of you that want to shoot trash into the wastebasket. If you make it, you're golden. If you miss, you're cleaning my floor and there will not be anything on my floor. And I was a basketball guy. 
I couldn't resist that open invitation. And I would take my chances every day in Mr. Reed's room. You know what I found is I actually did more homework in Mr. Reed's homework than I did in Mr. Rail's. See, grace caused me to labor. Rules, laws, regulations, what does it want you to, what does it cause you to do? I gotta break the rule. I got, someone's telling me I can't do this, then I'm gonna do it. But grace, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, it wins our hearts. Grace should win our heart and cause us to labor. The resurrection is grace. In verse 12, reading down to verse 19, the resurrection is pivotal. The resurrection is pivotal. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were those in the church of Corinth, which was in the Greek culture, that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that Christ had a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe that Christians would be resurrected in their bodies. The teaching of the day in their culture was the body was bad, but the spirit was good. So the body was gonna pass away and the spirit would go on to live with God, but there was no physical body resurrection. And that's what Paul's dealing with in these verses. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Did you catch that? If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is empty. There's no substance to it. Our preaching is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all men the most pitiful. The resurrection is pivotal. Maybe your question tonight as you come to this Easter celebration is, well, can't I be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? Can't I have eternal life and not believe in the resurrection? It seems to be very trendy and very popular with Christ to try to mix it with other things. Like, I'm a Christian Buddhist. So I'm gonna take the things of Christ and Buddha was into mercy and Christ was into love. So I'm a quote-unquote Christ follower, but I'm also a Buddha follower. But I don't really buy into all of Christ's claims and I don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, then this section of scripture is for you. It's saying if you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, you're still in your sins. Because if Christ isn't risen, then there's no forgiveness for us. This is salvation. This is the way that we are saved. And the claims, if Christ is still buried, think and listen to what was told to us. That preaching and faith is empty. Faith is futile. Still in our sins. No eternal life. Those that are perished will have no resurrection. So for us, the resurrection is everything. There's no salvation apart from believing that Christ rose from the dead. The end of verse 19 is interesting. It says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiful. So Paul is saying, if all of this so-called Christianity is just to make our lives better here on earth, then we should be pitied and people should feel sorry for us. Now, I'm so glad that Christ is in my life now 
But without there being eternity in mind, without there being the resurrection in mind, then Paul says people should look at us and they should feel sorry for us. Thankfully, there's more. It's important word here in verse 20, but. <laughs> but now Christ is risen from the dead and have become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Aren't you thankful for verse 20? Since Christ is risen, we're not in our sins. Since Christ is risen, our faith isn't futile. Our faith isn't empty. Our preaching isn't empty. We don't have to be pitied by others. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? First fruits, if you're someone who is into agriculture, where I grew up, there's a lot of really good pears. And that where the pears would come, you'd have the first fruits, which means there was more to come. And so Christ is risen. The way that Christ was risen bodily, all those who in Christ will be risen likewise. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Which man? Adam. When Adam bombed in the Garden of Eden, we inherited a sin nature, didn't we? So by Adam came death, but by Jesus Christ, the God-man, came resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the key, in Christ, by believing the gospel. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So we're going to follow in the resurrection of Christ. When, when Christ returns, there's going to be the bodily re resurrection of believers. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Don't get discouraged. I know it's really easy to get discouraged, but the second coming of Jesus Christ is Jesus making everything right, finally bringing peace and presenting it to the Father. Until then, there will be no peace, but eventually everything's gonna be won in triumph of Christ. Verse 25 for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The final victory will be death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, the son himself also will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Church, the resurrection declares to us that all things are under his feet. Do you have an awful boss? All things are under his feet. Are you in a terrible leasing situation? Is the mortgage, your interest rate on your mortgage less than desirable? Are you battling cancer? Are you facing death? All of it is underneath his feet. But let's consider this point. The resurrection is the first fruit. The resurrection is the first fruit. Would you just say that with me on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. Your turn. The is the first fruit. You know what this means? You're going to get a glorified body. Hallelujah. It is springtime, and we've got some spring projects going around our house, and so I've been down on my knees with a screw gun, cutting things, sanding things, and this evening, as I stand here in my 36-year-old body, my body is letting me know. It's saying, you, 
you're a pastor. You don't get into these positions a lot of times. Don't do that again, right? My body's starting to ache. And I look forward to that glorified body. Have you noticed that everybody wants to try to get back to the Garden of Eden? We're not going to get back to the garden until we go home to be with the Lord. That's great news. That's good news for us. Look at Christ and then go, there's a first fruits of the resurrection that is headed for us. A certain future for us. A glorified body. We look at verse 29. Going down to verse 34. The resurrection is motivation. The resurrection is motivation. Otherwise... What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Now, please do not get confused. Paul's not advocating for or justifying baptizing for the dead. He's simply showing that even the pagans think that there's going to be a resurrection. Why would they baptize for the dead if they didn't think that there was a resurrection? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by boasting in which I have in Christ our Lord. I die daily. Keep that in your mind. I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beasts of Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Sound familiar? That's the philosophy of the day. Live life, eat, drink for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow is also a celebration of different sorts, isn't it? I'll let you look that one up if you haven't figured that out. But a lot of people are falling into this mindset. I'll just tell you. You guys are looking at me like you don't know. How many of you honestly don't know? Tomorrow's 420, and that's pot day. And so across the country, everybody's getting together, and they're smoking pot out in public, and they're saying this. Let us eat, drink, and smoke pot for tomorrow we die. That's, that's the motivation. I'm, I'm food for worms. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this. Quite a little coincidence that it falls with Easter. So we've got these two celebrations that are, that are taking place. Choose the right one. Choose the right celebration. And we'll see why in these next few verses. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. How many of us can say yes and amen to that at times in our lives? Evil company corrupts good morals, good habits. So, so wake up to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Please hear this. The resurrection's motivation. Christ is risen, and if we're going to rise first fruits and have eternity with the Lord, it matters how you live your life. It's not just, I'm going to eat and drink. I'm going to try to get the most pleasure that I can in this life. It's saying, I want to deny myself. I want to take up my cross and die daily. Our flesh is strong, so it needs to be crucified daily. A daily choice to saying, I'm not living to myself, but I'm living to God. And Paul lists his suffering here. He says, man, I'd be a fool to suffer like this in Ephesus. And we don't know for sure what the beasts at Ephesus are. If he got brought into the Colosseum in a gladiator type of situation and the beasts released onto Christians, if he's speaking to those who hated him in Ephesus. But we know that Paul's life was not easy because he'd been impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he's saying it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. 
It may be uncomfortable, it may be difficult, but it's worthwhile. So make sure that you're awake to righteousness and not to sin, because we've got a job to do. Some don't have the knowledge of God. Some don't know who Jesus Christ is. The only thing that they've heard of Jesus is Jesus' name used in vain. They have no idea of his love. They have no idea of his death and his resurrection. More than any time before, we're living in an unchurched, nation, a nation that needs to be reached by Christ. Now's the time to be alive for Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is that motivation to say, I'm giving up comforts in this life to impact the next life. I want my life to matter for all of eternity. That's what the resurrection means in our life. For sake of our study, if you're still with me in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to jump forward to verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. The last trump brings us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. The ascension of Christ points to his second coming. In the same way that he was taken up, he'll also be brought back. He'll come and the last trump. And as the last trump is sounded, the dead in Christ will rise. Verse 43, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then we shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The resurrection is victory. The resurrection, blank. The resurrection, dot, dot, dot. The resurrection is victory. Now let's work our way through this quickly so that hopefully we're all of understanding. We don't get the glorified body till the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what happens when a believer dies now? Let's say, you die tonight and you go home to be with the Lord. The bad news is your life here on earth is done. The good news is you're home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Your last breath here on earth is your first breath in heaven. Good news. But you don't get your glorified body until the second coming of Jesus Christ this is not problematic, though, because time is not the same in heaven. It's an illustration. It's not a mathematical equation. But Peter says that a thousand years for us is a day unto the Lord. So you might be waiting a few moments for your glorified body up in heaven. But remember, it's eternity. It's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Time, it's probably much more like going to be an eternal now. I don't think we're going to be up in heaven going, when am I going to get my glorified body? It's going to be, whoa, I'm in heaven, and wow, I got my glorified body, and I'm buff, praise the Lord. And this is great. I didn't have to go to the gym or drink protein shakes or any of those things. And when that, ha when that happens, is then death is swallowed up in victory. The resurrection is victory. I know that for some, this is the first Easter, the first resurrection weekend since you've had a husband pass away, a son, a daughter pass away, a mom, a dad pass away. 
I'm always amazed, no matter the age of your parent, whenever they pass away, how heartbreaking that is to usher your parents into eternity. And for us to look at every grave in Christ and understand the grave and death does not have the final word. Isn't that good news? The grave and death does not have the final word in Christ Jesus. Death is brutal. Death is never satisfied. The cemeteries here are never satisfied. Cremation is never satisfied. There will be some of us that will be in eternity by this time next year. A man in our fellowship this week, 51 years old, went home to be with the Lord from a heart attack. Was with us last weekend. Now he's in the presence of the Lord, 51 years old. And some of you think, well, he's exaggerating when he says some of you will be in eternity. No, I absolutely mean it. I know it. I've pastored long enough to see it happen time and time again. It's very real and it's brutal when it's your loved one and it hurts deeply and Jesus knows that pain. And one of the good things about the tomb of Jesus Christ, one of the things to know thoroughly and to know well is you never have to go to a grave without hope in Christ. He knows what it feels like, plus he's conquered that grave. It's not the final word. It's not goodbye, it is see you soon. We do mourn, we need to understand that as believers. It doesn't hurt less because you're a believer, but in the midst of our mourning, there is hope. And this Easter, if you have a loved one on your heart, think of this phrase, death is swallowed up in victory. They're more alive than they've ever been before. We see this continued in verse 55 and verse 56. It says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your is your victory. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that there is no sting in death for believers. There's victory ultimately. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The reason that we die is because of sin. The reason that we're sinners is because of the law. That's what causes us to to be sinners. That's what holds us accountable. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We say this very quickly, sometimes without thinking, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his title, which means he's our master, that our life is surrendered to him. Victory comes in our lives as we surrender to him. Is Jesus your Lord tonight? Is he in the throne of your life? Jesus speaks of his mission, it's his name. It means that he came to be our savior, to forgive us of our sins. And Christ means Messiah, that he is the anointed and appointed one from the Old Testament, Lord Jesus Christ. If we think through that phrase and we believe it and we mean it, in his very name is salvation. You're my Lord, I surrender to you. Jesus, I believe that you're my savior. I believe that you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the appointed one, the anointed one. Now, here's the challenge for us. Here's our response to the resurrection. This is what I pray for, is that the resurrection of Christ will be impacting us on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because the resurrection means all of these things. Because Christ is risen, don't take your foot off the throttle for Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a little bit weary, you're a little bit tired, you're not seeing the outcome. 
as a believer, as the child of God, you came to this resurrection weekend going, well, this will be great for people that don't know Christ. We hope so and we pray so, but also that it would be great for believers. You don't give up. Be more in love with Jesus Christ this time next year than we are this year. What has God called you to? Stand there and fight that battle. Be faithful. Be steadfast. That's what it's telling us here in Scripture. Don't move off point. One of David's mighty men, he guarded some beans. I love that guy. He's the bean warrior. He's the Frito burrito, you know? He's there with his sword and everybody else is fleeing the beans and he's saying, I'm gonna be steadfast and immovable and guarding the beans and God won a great victory. Maybe you feel like I'm just guarding the beans. I'm counting the beans at work, you know? I'm watching the beans grow up at home and they're my children, you know? And God's saying, be steadfast, be immovable. It matters to the Lord. Stay in that place that God has called you. Don't move away from it. That's the first two exhortations. Be steadfast, be immovable. Our tendency is to move away from the things that God has called us to. But then it says, always abounding in the work of God. Look to do more. Church, look to do more. Take the hill for Jesus Christ. People are going to hell. Do more. Abound in the work of the Lord. Christ has risen. Go for it. That's the message here. God's on the move. The power of the resurrection lives inside of you. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of you. So look for every opportunity that God may have to use your life, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Oh, it's going to be hard work. There is an easier path in life, but it's going to be more than worthwhile. A young man by the name of William Bowden, when he was 16, 1904, his parents set him on a trip around the world. He was an extremely wealthy family. He was going to inherit millions. So they sent their son around the world. And as he was in places of great poverty, his heart was won over for missions. And he wrote this in the back of his Bible. He, he wrote this simple phrase, no reserves, no reserves means something when you're a wealthy millionaire. He came back from this trip. He went to Yale. He did very well in Yale. He ended up impacting the campus for Jesus Christ. After his graduate work, then he went over to Egypt to study Arabic because he had a heart for missions, where then he came down with spinal meningitis and he died at age 25 years old. They found his Bible again and he'd added two more words. No reserves, then the two words added, no retreat and no regrets. At the time of his passing, his death was accounted in most of the major newspapers around America. And this is what was written about his life. It says, he not only gave away his wealth, but he gave himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. That's someone that's been impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What a great way to live life. God wants to use you. And that's a message that we find in the resurrection. As we close this evening, would you make application? Would I make application? The resurrection means, and what does it mean to you? What does it mean in your life that Christ has died for you and rose again? If you are going to take inventory of your heart tonight, 
would your heart be in love with Jesus Christ? What if on this Saturday night, God gripped your heart? The believer, the child of God, is he encouraging you in something to be steadfast, to be immovable, to abound in the work of the Lord? Tonight, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's the moment of decision. And we're so glad that you're here. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond. Right where you're at, right where you're sitting, if you're upstairs in the upper room or the cafe, you're sitting here in this room in the sanctuary, I'm going to ask that you would raise your hand. And you're not going to raise your hand to me, but you're going to raise it to Jesus Christ. And I want to explain very clearly what you're doing. For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the law tells us so. The law tells us how we're supposed to live our lives, that we're not supposed to steal, that we're not to lie, that we're not to use God's name in vain. Jesus then defined that to a greater degree, that we weren't to have lust in our hearts or anger, and very quickly we realized that we're a sinner. And because of our sin, we're separated from God. That's why Jesus had to come. If we weren't separated from God, there's no need for Christ to come in human flesh, live a perfect life, die upon the cross, and rise again. However, Jesus did that to pay the price for our sins. He died for our sins and rose again. This is the gospel. How are we then saved? How are we then in Christ? My Bible here tonight, a lot of times I have post-its. I'm a post-it guy, and if I put this post-it inside my Bible, you don't see it any longer. It's in my Bible. And how do we get to where we're in Christ? Scriptures tell us it's through faith. To believe that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, to confess him as Lord from our heart. So with our heart, confessing with our mouth, Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again. Now be the Lord of my life. Take control of my life. Turning away from your sin and turning to Christ and saying, Christ, save me. Now this is what I believe. Every single person in here, you know what you've decided with Jesus Christ. If you're the child of God right now, the spirit of God is bearing witness inside of you. Oh, you're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. You're the child of God. You believe in Jesus Christ as your savior. But then there's some of you, you're saying, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever said yes to Jesus Christ. I can't remember a time where I committed my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Some of you are saying, I know up until this point, I've been against Christ and I don't know how in the world I got here tonight, but I know that God's doing something in my life. So you know your heart and God knows your heart. And as we pray, raise your hand to him and say, Jesus, save me and be the Lord of my life. But before we pray, consider this carefully. What you decide to do with Christ over the course of your lifetime determines whether you go to heaven or hell. If you say no to Jesus, no to Jesus, no to Jesus, no to Jesus, and you do that through your whole life and you step into eternity, it's eternally being separated from God. But if you say yes to Christ, he gives you eternal life and comes into your life and the grand adventure begins of walking with him. It's not easy, but it's extremely worthwhile. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We celebrate you in our lives. We thank you for your death and your resurrection. Jesus, as our risen Savior, would you impact our hearts afresh tonight with the power of the resurrection? Just like you did with Saul, where you called him by name, Jesus, we're asking that you would work in hearts. We know that it doesn't happen 
through persuasion. It doesn't happen through music. It doesn't happen through men and women. It happens through the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, you're the one that draws people to yourself. And we're asking that you'd open eyes and you'd open hearts. If that's you and you feel Jesus tugging upon your heart, knocking upon the door of your heart, you want to say yes to Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, receive the gospel. I'm going to ask that you just raise your hand right where you're at, that you'd hold it up high and leave it up. Praise the Lord. See your hands over here. Praise God. Anybody else today that say, that's me, I want to receive Christ. Praise the Lord. I see your hand right there in the back. Anybody else that says, God's pulling on my heart. Praise the Lord. I see both of your hands here. Anybody else that says, that's me, praise God. I see your hand there in the back. Those of you that have your hands raised, say this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I repent of my sin and invite you to be the Lord of my life, take control of my life. Thank you for your promise that whoever calls upon you will be saved. That whoever confesses with your mouth and believes in their heart that Christ is risen from the dead is saved. Jesus, I receive that free gift of salvation. You can put your hands down.